0: Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Dr. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about making healthy choices with Dr. Zoe Chance. Dr. Chance is Assistant Professor of Marketing at Yale School of Management, and here's Dr. Anise Chagpar.
1: So I have to tell our listeners why Zoe is on this show. So here's a little bit of background. Zoe and I are both in this fabulous program called Public Voices, which is going on here at Yale. And it's part of the op-ed project, which is really about getting leaders to start to express all of their work so that we can get it out to you, the public. And what I thought was so fabulous about the work that Zoe's doing is the way that she's really thinking about how we can make healthy choices. And so when I thought about our show and what we talk about every week in terms of cancer prevention and cancer survivorship, I thought, you know what? Making healthy choices is something that we all ought to be thinking about um and so i thought this would be really exciting so zoe thank you again tell us a little bit more about all of this work that you've been doing and how you can help people especially you know as we're you know in this holiday season and we're trying to make these choices there are things that we do all year round but it's especially hard this time of year
2: absolutely and The reason why we need to be doing this kind of research and this kind of education in the first place isn't that people don't have information about how healthy choices can be made, what they should be doing, what they should maybe eating, that they should be doing exercise, things like this, that they shouldn't be smoking. But there's this gap between intention and behavior. And a lot of times we just don't follow through on the things that we know that we need to do. And my work is in behavioral economics. I do research in that area and teaching on influence and persuasion. And what we look for are ways to bridge that gap between intentions and behaviors. And it's very, very simple and operationalized in many different ways, but basically making the desirable activities like healthy choices easier or more pleasurable.
1: So I'll tell you, Zoe, as somebody who knows what the right answer is, but rarely makes the right choice... I would be delighted to learn how you make that easier because I'm sure that everybody right after Christmas and the holidays, we, we, we knew that the right answer was to avoid all of the, you know, chocolate cake and the bread pudding and everything else. And we knew that the right answer was we have to get to the gym. And we didn't. Um, So how do you make that easier? Tell us about what your findings have been.
2: So first of all, that's true for all of us. It's true for me too. So the first thing that we can do is quit beating ourselves up about not making the right choice all the time. And because we want to reduce stress in our lives as well, right? And it's really important for our health. So making better choices is great. And if we can focus on making better choices more often rather than making the best choice all the time because then um, we're just going to feel bad about it. So one example would be um, when we show up, say, to a holiday party or we're hosting a gathering at our house and we're choosing what foods should we be eating, what foods shouldn't we be eating, how much should we eat, how much shouldn't we eat. And if you just have the goal of I want to make it as easy as possible for me to – Well, fulfill whatever my goals are, but let's say that I want to eat more good stuff, less bad stuff, less altogether um, if I'm trying to maintain my weight. So I might start with eating the stuff that I know is the good stuff and fill myself up, right? I might use a smaller plate. And this is something that listeners can do in their families. One of the best things they can do in their kitchen is just restock the plates and cups and uh, silverware to make everything smaller. Because we tend to feel more satisfied when we're eating a full, when we're eating from a full plate or cup or bowl, even if it's smaller than when we're eating the same amount from plateware that's actually bigger. Um, Another thing that we can do is just let ourselves have small portions of the stuff that we love. So like, If you love peanut brittle, go ahead and have a little piece because trying not to eat the thing that you love can make you eat way, way more of the things that you only like. So letting yourself have a little reward um, is a helpful thing you can do. Another thing when it's your own kitchen or your own house is just keeping the tempting foods out of sight as much as possible. So we tend to reach for and eat whatever is accessible, so things that we can see, things that are convenient to eat, right? So if you put a bowl of fruit out on the counter instead of leaving the chips and the cookies out on the counter, it's much easier to see and eat the fruit. Um, And if it's pretty, like putting the fruit in a nice bowl, right, and having it all washed and ready to go, these simple, simple things can make a big difference. And developing habits, like, for example, when you want a snack, going to the fridge instead of opening up the cupboard because the healthier stuff is in the fridge and the less healthy stuff is going to be in the cupboard. In terms of keeping the temptations out of sight a little bit more, another thing um, that some people will do is just put the tempting foods in an opaque container. And this sounds huh. so simple, but it's so effective. So we have at my house, like a lot of other people do, a box that is this opaque box for junk food and the cookies and chips and things like that go in the box and you know it's in the cupboard but you just don't see it immediately when you open up the pantry door and other people will put foods or drinks that they don't want to be tempted by say in the basement so we've worked with people that are trying to drink less and so they'll put the beer down in the basement and they still know that it's there but because but they're taking advantage of our natural inclination to be lazy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I I love it. So, um speaking of being lazy, give us a few tips on how to get more physically active because I think that's something that we know is a good behavior. But it takes a lot of effort. I mean, and and it's not like you can kind of you know, put it in in, in, a, in a clear container
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and with eating and exercise and a lot of health behaviors the really difficult thing is that we need to exercise willpower again and again and again and again because it's not like on the one day that you're super motivated you can get all of your exercise for the year yeah right or even all of your exercise for the week so the two things to keep in mind always are how to make it easier and how to make it more pleasurable so with exercise for example a lot of us will put out our exercise clothes the night before because you wake up, at least I wake up in the morning, and I'm tired, and I'm groggy, and I'm looking for any excuse not to, say, go for a run. But when my exercise clothes are just sitting right next to my bed, yeah. I mindlessly put on my jogging shoes and my exercise clothes, and then I am just. I find myself floating out the door yeah. without any intention. It's almost like your gym clothes are sitting there going,
1: you know that you need to wear me.
2: Right, yeah. Right. So it's easier to put on your gym clothes than to put on any other clothes at that moment, if you put them there. Um, And also just making it fun. So whatever exercise it is that you like to do, planning to do that, instead of telling yourself, like, I just don't like lifting weights. I don't think it's any fun at all. But I love doing yoga. I love running outside. So maybe I should be skipping weights to be at my optimal peak level of health. But... I'm just not going to worry about it, right? As long as I'm exercising, um, and exercising with people that we like, and especially if you can find someone. A mistake that that a lot of us will make is choosing an exercise buddy who has the same problem that we do of not exercising. Mm -hmm. And then it's really easy for us both to find excuses not to exercise and to feel like, oh, it's okay, because she's not going to go exercise either. So if you're looking for an exercise buddy to find someone who's already in the habit of exercising, so that they will actually be going instead of giving you an excuse not to go. So trying to find, you know, people who have
1: different flaws. You're, you're really good at exercise. I'm really good at diet. We can buddy together.
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Another, another really simple thing that makes exercising more fun. I actually have a TED Talk, in which I talked about this, I got addicted to a pedometer. That particular one was called Strive, and it has video games in it that are so addictive, they were made by the makers of Farmville, which was this super boring but incredibly addictive video game that a lot of people were using on Facebook. And many, many people... Find that they can't not exercise when they have a pedometer that's measuring their steps because it's so reinforcing to have this granular measurement of step by step positive reinforcement for every single step that you take during the day. So that would be a great Christmas gift, for example.
1: Yeah. Like the Fitbits that say, You just climbed the Hollywood sign. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. They're I, I, silly, but they work. Yeah. What about doing other things? So one of the things that you talked about that I think is a big issue for a lot of people who are thinking about cancer prevention is quitting smoking. Now, this one is really hard. There are great smoking cessation services, there are patches, there are gums. Any behavioral things that can kind of motivate
2: you To quit smoking? So I definitely don't have any magic pill that will suddenly allow people (laughs) to quit smoking with ease. There have been a lot of behavioral economics working on smoking cessation programs where they used incentives. And a lot of those have been successful. And it's because... That once you've quit smoking for a certain period of time, a lot of people don't go back. And incentives only work during that time period where people are being incentivized. So it doesn't work as well for weight loss, for example, as it does for smoking. If you wanted to create your own incentive program for smoking, there are a couple of Yale professors Um, Ian Ayers and Dean Carlin, that have created this website that's called Stick, S-T-I-K-K.com. I I don't know if you know this website or those guys. Do you? I knew this website. I didn't know that it was created by Yale guys. Yeah. But it's totally great. Anyways, tell our listeners about it. It's great. And a lot of my students and a lot of my friends and colleagues have used the site to make habits or break habits. And what you do is you are betting your own money that you will... Do a certain thing or not do a certain thing. It's totally designed by you. So you could say you're going to check in on smoking and measure you're not smoking, or you're going to check in on exercising, or eating, or whatever it is, but you are you are staking your money on yourself, so that and you decide what happens to your money, and you decide how much it is, but if you don't follow through, and if you don't hit those milestones, then the money gets sucked away to, it could be that it goes to a friend, or it could be it goes to a group of friends, and they have a party without you, it could be that it goes to one of your hated causes, so yeah. say you're pro-life or pro-choice, say you bet hundreds of dollars that you're going to quit smoking. And if you if you smoke another cigarette, then that money is going to go to this cause that you absolutely, absolutely hate, that pains you in the depths of your soul that you're supporting this thing.
1: Yeah, I, I, I love that idea. Um, and I encourage our listeners to, to check it out. So Zoe, talk about, you know, kind of, I love this whole idea of kind of really intermixing behavioral economics and in medicine and, and and what we do in, in cancer medicine. How long has that been going on? And tell us a bit about how that really, that meshes. Because it seems like it really does. I mean, people pay people to quit smoking and they quit smoking. Hopefully they stay quit.
2: Yeah. So um, it's behavioral economics has become increasingly popular, especially over the past few years. And it it hasn't been more than a decade or so that there have been a lot of people doing research in behavioral economics and medicine and medical decision-making, but it's a great partnership, so I think it's going to be increasingly more and more fruitful. Some of the researchers that are working in both of those areas are Kevin Volp at the University of Pennsylvania um, and Peter Eubel, who's at Duke, and they both are physicians that are now working in decision-making. And so they're bringing their medical knowledge together with um With people who work in decision-making and investing a lot in that. So we
1: are are going to take a very brief break for a medical minute, but I hope you're all enjoying this, and please stay tuned to learn more information about healthy decision-making with my guest, Dr. Zoe Chance.
0: The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut alone this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as the one at Yale and at Smilo Cancer Hospital to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve the management of the disease by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in a more patient-specific treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Zoe Chance. Zoe is an assistant professor in marketing at the School of Management, and this is one of the reasons I love this show because we get to bring in all of these fabulous voices, um, these fabulous minds from disparate fields to really talk about things that matter to patients who are thinking about cancer prevention and cancer survivorship. And today we're talking about ways that people can lead healthier, happier, and more fulfilling lives. Like, how great is that? So, Zoe, before the break, we were talking a little bit about using some of the techniques with behavioral economics and other things to make better choices in terms of diet and exercise and smoking. You know, the other thing that you said right at the top of the show, which I think is so important, is that people need to stop beating themselves up. We we need to decrease the stress in our lives. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how? what advice you have for people who are trying to reduce stress because Lord knows um, a lot of cancer patients have a lot of stress and stress leads to a lot of cancer.
2: Yeah, thank you. Something I've been thinking about a lot in general, but especially this week, because it's been Thanksgiving when we're taping this right now, is gratitude and going into the holiday season, how this is such a stressful time for people. And one of the most high leverage activities that we can do is just simply keeping a gratitude journal. And there's been a lot of research in psychology on the positive benefits of keeping a gratitude journal. And Something that I love about that is that differently from the positive effects of, say, eating well or exercising, when you eat well, you get healthy years down the road, right? And you don't know exactly what the effects are. But keeping a gratitude journal reduces stress in the moment. So it's a great intervention, not just as a daily or weekly practice, but right in the moment when you're feeling stressed, it can totally shift your mindset by shifting what you focus on and actually changing your hormones gratitude journals have improved people's psychological health their physical health people report literally reduced aches and pains when they keep a gratitude journal increased um sorry decreased viral load and improvements to their immune system wow better sleep and more resilience lower rates of ptsd i have my students keep a gratitude journal because it's so powerful
1: That's really awesome. And and something that I think, as you say, there's been a lot of work on and a lot of people um, really um, kind of buy into this whole concept of the power of gratitude. Certainly I do. But one of the things that's really difficult, and maybe you can help us with a few techniques, is, you know, at the times when I'm the most stressed or I'm angry or I just am really at my wits end, it's really hard in that moment. To think about gratitude. I mean, I can do that once I've settled down at the end of the day. I can kind of take a deep breath and think, you know what? There's a lot of
2: things to be grateful for. But right in that moment, it's like, ah! Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's so useful. And when I'm giving gratitude challenges to my students, they have weekly gratitude challenges while they take my class on influence and persuasion. And some of the most impactful gratitude exercises that they do are finding the good in difficulties in their life. So finding the good in stressful situations, finding the good in failures, What? What possibilities, opportunities has, for example, cancer opened up? A lot of my students have had medical issues, family traumas. And when they're able to shift and find the good in it, that's the practice that helps them be more optimistic overall and in the long run. But I'm not going to lie, it's really, really hard, but it's meeting that challenge in the moment that provides the benefit.
1: Yeah, I, I will tell you, You know, I have had so many patients, it may not be at the moment that you are the most stressed or the most scared or the most worried or the most frightful. Um, But I would tell you that nearly every single one of my patients has come out of cancer a stronger, healthier, more vibrant person because they do just that. I've had patients who say, you know what, Um, I never used to travel. I used to be scared to travel. After my cancer diagnosis, you know what? It, it puts a frame shift in your mind and they're like, I want to go see the world. And they do. Or they want to be healthier and they quit smoking. Or they reignite relationships that they had put aside before because I think that that whole experience um, kind of gives them a new outlook. And, and it very much plays into, I am grateful to be alive. Absolutely. Um, and 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 so I agree. But do you think that in order for gratitude journals and these challenges to be effective, does it have to be in that moment when you're the most stressed? Or can it be after? Or is it more effective in that moment? And if it is more effective in that moment, I'm still struggling with when I'm really upset, Zoe. I'm like really upset. Like
2: there is no way I'm keeping gratitude journal when I'm really upset. <laughs> Maybe it depends on what you mean by in that moment. If you mean in that moment where you're sobbing your eyes out or ready to punch somebody's face in, yeah, that's go ahead and feel that. Okay, no, no. (laughs) Go ahead and feel that. But if it's that day, right? Right. And, you know, an hour later, or in the moment where you're feeling sad and you feel like you could cry, right? That's also different. And that's a time when you can take a step back, right? But if you want to punch pillows, kick things, yell, scream... Go for it. <laughs> Preferably at a
1: kickboxing class or in your bedroom with a pillow. Just a uh, word of caution. Um, but I agree with you. And it kind of goes to this whole thing about never go to bed angry,
2: right? Never go to bed upset. Yeah. And we, I, I learned that at least on the Cosby show from Heathcliff Hoxtable. <laughs> But it's a great thing to remember for ourselves too. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that this whole idea of positivity and really embracing everything that is good in life can sometimes make the things that suck. And yes, cancer
2: sucks much better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not pretending that it doesn't suck. Yeah. It's just finding the good along with the suck.
1: Yeah. I yeah. agree. I agree I want to shift uh, I, I want to shift gears just a wee bit because I, I really want to hear more about some of the really exciting field studies you've done. Um, I've heard just
2: bits and pieces but I want you to share it with everybody. Sure I'll share just a couple of really specific field studies to show how it can make a huge difference to make a tiny, tiny, tiny tweak. So we've been working with Google. I work with the Yale Center for Customer Insights and the Google Food team. And we've been partnering for a while on helping Google employees make healthy choices by accident. And we will do studies like this. We will send out undercover spies to pretend that they're Googlers, they're secretly RAs, and they'll just watch people's behavior in a break room. And one thing we were curious about was how much people would be mindlessly snacking when they're grabbing a coffee or a drink if the coffee machine is close to the snacks or if the coffee machine is farther from the snacks. It's in the same room. So there's one close coffee machine, one farther coffee machine. And we just had our undercover spies record Uh, For the people that went and took a cup of coffee, did they grab a snack? And what we found was that the people who grabbed a cup of coffee from the machine that was close to the snack bar were 50% more likely to then grab a snack before they went back to work. And when we looked at the average calories in the snacks, we calculated, estimated that for men who were more prone to this effect than women... The effect over a year's time of taking an extra cup of coffee from the close machine would be gaining about a pound. Oh, my goodness. From, yeah, from increased snacking. When we presented these results to Google and someone from the architecture firm that they worked with was there as well, he immediately called his boss at the architecture firm and said, listen, when we design cafes and snack bars for any of our clients, we absolutely have to separate the drinks and snacks.
1: That's a great
2: tip. That's a great tip. So we can be doing that at home. It's something really simple that we should keep in mind.
1: Yeah. The other place where I mindlessly snack is if I'm working on something, it's amazing how many chips go into my mouth or how many crackers go into my mouth. And before you know it, I'm working
2: on something and then the box is done. Exactly. And that speaks to another experiment that we ran at Google that... (laughs) that can help us feel better about ourselves when we eat the entire bag or the entire box. Oh, good. I'm going to need this one. (laughs) It it just turns out that all of us as humans, whether it's an intellectual belief or it's just a habitual belief, we think that the right amount to eat is the whole thing. (laughs) So... We just need to give ourselves smaller servings. Like if you're going to buy junk food, don't ever try to save money on buying a bigger container. Buy, the, buy servings as small as you can, or when you bring them home, serve yourself into bags or servings yeah. as small as it can be. So at Google, again, in another break room, the snack that's most popular there is M&M's. And they were serving them from bulk containers into these four-ounce cups. And almost everybody would fill the four-ounce cup. And that's actually a lot of M&Ms. But they fill the cup, go back to work. So all that we did was we switched out these four-ounce cups for fun-size, like Halloween candy-type packs. And people reduced the amount of M&Ms that they were eating by more than 50%. So it was from over 300 calories to about 150 calories because it's just easier to grab a pack. Right than to you know grab two or three or whatever. So we just need to accept that we will act as if the right amount to eat is the whole thing. Yeah. So rather than trying to control the amount to eat, control how much is the whole thing.
1: That goes back to your whole thing about the plate. Exactly.
2: You don't like to we see empty space on the plate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And when we're filling a plate at Um, If we're at a buffet or a party or something like that, we fill our plate with the first items that we come in contact with. And so just start at the healthy side. Yeah. Put the salad on first. Fill half the plate with the salad and then the rest is condiments. Yeah.
1: This isn't rocket science.
2: It's just a matter of putting these common sense things into practice. Yeah.
1: I am so going to take the chips and the crackers and put them into little Mm. snack size baggies and put them in an opaque container (laughs) as soon as I go home because... Because, you know, I, I really do go through the entire the entire box. We all do. So tell me more about other studies that you've been doing. I think it's fascinating that you've been working at Google. Um, any other studies that you'd like to share?
2: Um, a really silly one that we did was advertising discussing vegetables. So people said, I would never eat these vegetables that I hate. And we decided to choose people's five most hated vegetables, okay. which were Brussels sprouts, Broccoli. Um, no, broccoli was one that people more liked? people like than hate. Yeah, there's okay. There's Brussels sprouts, squash, beets, parsnips. One other horrible one that I can't remember. And I'd agree with that list. Though. <laughs> okay. I'd add broccoli, but anyways, okay. carry on. And we asked people, "Would you eat more of those if we advertised?" They said no. no. We said, "Would you eat more, you know, cupcakes, cookies, donuts if we advertised?" They said, "Absolutely yes." But we put advertising messages with trivia just right there where the vegetables were being served. And we call this a moment of truth. So when you try to convince someone to do something right at the time and place when they're actually able to act on it, it's much more powerful than, say, if you tell people, hey, it's really important to eat more vegetables. And we just put a beautiful, fun sign with beautiful pictures on it and silly trivia saying, hey, try the beets. And did you know that the biggest beet ever grown was over 500 pounds and it was by a (laughs) Dutchman named Piet de Houda? Who cares? Doesn't matter. And yet it got it got people to – 75% more people were trying these horrible vegetables and they served themselves two-thirds more – two-thirds larger servings.
1: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, I'm not sure that the bright sunny picture and the the the, the trivia would work for me personally because <laughs> I would probably go, it's still a parsnip, it's still a Brussels sprout. But for all of you out there who are trying to think about disgusting vegetables, um,
2: you should try this. <laughs> Do and they, they, you, can, you can give your vegetable dishes cute names to make people more excited to eat them. And that's something Brian Wansink, who's at Cornell, and his researchers will do when they work with, foods, with, <laughs> work with school systems and cafeterias. They'll just give their vegetables nice names, and kids are more likely to eat them. And even with fruit, like fresh Florida oranges, everyone can see the oranges are fresh. We know they mostly come from Florida. But a little sign that says fresh Florida oranges makes people more likely to take them.
1: Interesting. Interesting, interesting. What other tips? I'm trying to milk Zoe for everything she's got.
2: Sure. Let's see. What other tips? Um, Lots of times we have, well, we have certain times of the week or the day that we have more motivation or willpower to make the right choice. So we just want to leverage those as much as possible. So if it's in the food context, for example, when you're cooking a healthy meal, just have the intention and the practice of always making more of it so that you can have leftovers, mm. so that you can freeze some of it. At a restaurant, so I don't know if your listeners know, restaurant meals have, are four times bigger than they used to be in the 1950s. So we know that we get lots of food at a restaurant. Instead of trying to have the willpower to only eat some of it, and leave the rest on the plate. Ask them to plate up and put in a doggy bag half of your meal before you even start.
0: Dr. Zoe Chance is Assistant Professor of Marketing at Yale School of Management. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to Yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC and as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.